0: Hey, hey, beer fans, this is Denny. I'm up in Yakima this week for hop and Brew School and to check out the hop harvest for 2022. So we're going to go back to 2019 with a Q&A episode uh, that we thought you'd hopefully get some useful information out of. Uh, one thing I'd like to mention, though, is that uh, our charity is now the Pongo Fund, which is uh, pretty much a food bank for pets. So shoot us a couple bucks on Patreon, and we'll shoot it over to them to help out. I'll be back next week, and we'll have a new show for you. In the meantime, hope you enjoy the Q&A. Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn.
1: And I'm Drew Beecham. Together we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing: Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, And Simple Homebrewing, now available at all your finest retailers. And don't forget, if you've bought a copy and you've read the book, please leave us a review on places like Amazon. It really helps. Boy, does it ever. Now, between the two of us, we have over 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas.
0: And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and coming up with a way to check it out.
1: Well, and on today's episode, well, last time we were live at HomebrewCon, this time... It's all your questions and answers. Yes, that's right. Because of the homebrewcon, we pushed back our traditional every 12 episode Q&A episode to episode 12 plus 1. So, (laughs) it's time. Time for us to get down to the business of answering questions. But, of course, we have business to take care of.
0: So, before we dive in and uh, try to see what we know, please take a listen to these messages from our sponsors. This episode of the Experimental Brewing Podcast is brought to you by you, our listeners. Go to ExperimentalBrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you like to the podcast and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the AHA link to join the American Homebrewers Association. Part of the proceeds from those will go to help support the podcast. And thanks for your support.
1: Well, welcome back. Thank you for listening to those messages from our sponsors. And remember, if you interact with them or any of the other people who bring you this fine, fine show – Make sure you tell them that you heard about them here on Experimental Brewing. It makes them know that they're spending their dollars well. And speaking of things of where we spend our dollar as well, don't forget to check out last week's episode of The Brew Files, episode 66. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. Episode 66 about middling beer, which is not as middling as you think. I sit down with Phil Jensen, who is a friend of ours who's been to HomebrewCon for a number of years, about how to use a byproduct of the flour industry to make better tasting beer.
0: There's only one announcement for today, and it's about Hop and Brew School at Yakima Chief Hops in Yakima, Washington. Where else? It runs from August 30th to September 2nd. Four days of hops, beer, fun, and education, and it's going to be a, a great time. This will be my sixth time going, I believe, and I absolutely love the event. It starts with a party, August 30th, at Bale Breaker Brewing. Boy, that's hard to say. Uh, near Yakima. Beautiful, beautiful brewery. Fantastic beers set in the middle of a hop field. It is a really cool place. Uh, after that, then we have... Uh, Sessions during the mornings, generally, where people speak, talk about hops, uh you talk to the growers, stuff like that, and in the afternoons, you'll hop on a bus, head out to the hop fields to where the hops are processed, you'll get to see them being made into hop extract, Uh talk to the people, it's really, really cool. Back to Yakima Chief's Warehouse in the evening for dinner, and then, uh, If there's not a party that night and there are a couple scheduled, there's always the Sports Center to uh, hang out in, the world's coolest dive bar.
1: There we go. It sounds awesome, and I can't wait. Now, I think speaking of hops, it's time for us to get started.
0: All right, man. I am ready. Well, I think I'm ready. Let's, Let's dig in here, shall we?
1: And, of course, our first topic for today is going to be hops. And, man, looking through the questions, it seems everybody wants to know about hop creep.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like the hip new thing in the homebrew world,
1: huh? Yep, and so our very first question comes from Tony E. from New Jersey, and he says, It was nice to meet you, listen to you live, and thank you for signing my books at HomebrewCon in Providence, Rhode Island. It was also nice to see Drew's face light up when he saw me drag out my classic copy of the Everything Homebrewing book. Oh yeah, I like seeing that book. (laughs) I listened and laughed at every plug Denny gave multiple times in every presentation to pick up a copy of Simple Homebrewing. I did not intend to buy it then but somehow felt compelled and did end up buying a copy to have it signed. For those listening out there on the podcast, let me save Denny from another shameless plug. It's available right now at Amazon.com and all the other final retailers. (laughs) I appreciate that. My question is, I have brewed my go-to American pale ale recipe many times, sometimes with minor tweaks to refine, but mostly stays the same. In this case, I was making an exact repeat of a first-place winning recipe for a competition, But I did not get a chance to brew when I should have. Work, life, and Hobricon got in the way. That never happens. So I rushed it a bit, and I cut some corners to get it kegged and carved in time. My heart sunk when I tasted the hydrometer sample after kegging. A slickness on the mouthfeel. An off flavor that I think is diacetyl. And it finished four points lower than normal. It is more foamy than my other carved beers right now. Where I cut corners is not crash cooling before dry hop and added dry hop sooner than normal at upper end of fermentation temperatures of 68 degrees on day 5, the tail end of fermentation. Crash cooled on day 7 and kegged on day 8. I use London ESB yeast. I normally ferment at 64 and free rise to 68 at the tail end of fermentation and followed that in this case as well. I normally ferment for 7 days, crash cool to 50 to drop some yeast. This yeast is fairly flocculent. That's saying something for the London ESB. Yes, it is. Yeah. And dry hop at 62 degrees Fahrenheit for two days, crash, cool, and keg to f- by day 14, almost twice as long as my shortcut this time. I ferment and dry hop in primary, uh, brew bucket, without removing yeast. I am not sure if this is hop creep or not, as from what I've learned, and this happens post-packaging, not at packaging. But I am not sure, and that's why I'm coming to you. Hoping you can provide some insight on how to prevent this in the future. I've heard that this happens to others more and more recently with New England IPAs, and never thought it would happen to me. The only other variable is some of the hops were from a different but reputable supplier. They were freshly opened from a vacuum-sealed pack. Prior versions without this issue were older hops from a different supplier that I vacuum seal into smaller sizes once initially opened and use over 6 to 12 months.
0: Denny, thoughts? Uh, It could be hop creep, but there's no guarantee that it is. Uh, It's really hard to know. Uh, Diacetyl could be a sign of hop creep but with your accelerated schedule the diacetyl might have come from that you know incomplete fermentation uh you know it's it's really really hard to tell um what to do to prevent it in the future well you know man you, you slow down you take more time uh but you know, that that didn't happen here. If you really want to get rid of the diacetyl, you could try croisening the batch, adding about a quart of actively fermenting wort to it, and see if that will consume the diacetyl. Uh, but really, there are a lot of things here that could have possibly caused it. Uh, what I do that I have inadvertently found probably prevents hop creep is crash the beer before I dry hop it, uh transfer it to a new uh, fermenter, Dry hop it there, crash it again, and you know I was trying to get hop creep and I couldn't, and uh, that seems to be something that prevented it. Well, that so, sounds like
1: it's part of Tony's normal routine.
0: Yeah, it it really is, yeah, and so maybe that's that prevents it normally, uh, but again, there's no way to say if this really is hop creep or not.
1: Yeah, and for this particular one, I would actually guess it's probably pushing that yeast, uh, as Tony pointed out, London ESB is very flocculent. Um, it also tends to produce a little bit of asshole like a lot of the other British strains. So that's kind of where I would plug it, and not so much at the hop creep side. Yeah, but I'm, but having said that, hop creep, while we do normally talk about it as a packaging, thing, could happen in primary if you're in there long enough. But the other thing to remember is hop creep takes a good long while to kind of set in. It's not an instantaneous thing.
0: Yeah, and and again, you know, it only happens apparently with certain varieties of hops, certain strains of yeast. So you know. People like to call hop creep when anything unusual happens to their beer these days, and I don't believe it's always the culprit. On the other hand, it could be.
1: Yeah, well, people are always going to be like, I don't get it. What's going on? (laughs) Hop creep, hop creep. Exactly. All right, so now let's
0: move on to our next question. You want to read it? Sure. Hey guys, love the podcast. I really enjoyed the interviews you guys did, but I found the hop one the most interesting. As a home brewer and small scale hop grower, I'm curious as to how wet hops would increase or decrease hop creep, since in the interview they mentioned that kilning process has an effect. In the past, I did not dry them since I only have a couple plants. I'm also very curious how different my varieties will be growing in San Diego versus more traditional growing areas. Keep up the good work. Looking forward to the next episode. So what do you think?
1: Well, in this particular case, uh, as we're going to find out with the next question that gets asked, that's also about hop creep. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, uh, most of the enzymes that seem to cause hop creep are actually in the vegetable material. And if you have a lot of vegetable material, as you will in wet hops, and also you're not deactivating any of the enzymes in those wet hops, I would totally expect you to see more of that if you were doing the right things to cause hop creep. Um, as for how your varieties are going to differ growing up in San Diego as opposed to, say, Yakima, um, I don't know enough to know that I could can tell you the answer to that. But <laughs> there, I mean, I, I suspect for most of us, the differences between the hops that we grow at home and the hops that are grown in professional fields, that's going to have even more of an impact than the terroir aspects.
0: Uh, okay, I don't. I, I don't agree with that. I I think the terroir makes a a huge difference, and not necessarily growing them at home versus commercial growers growing them in fields. Well, I'm I, just saying that.
1: I mean, I I think
0: if if we could have commercial hops grown in San Diego
1: versus commercial hops grown in Yakima, I think you could see it, we could clearly point out what the differences were. I think you're going to have a lot of differences induced even just from the difference in the growing techniques as well.
0: Yeah, maybe. Uh, you know, all I can tell you is that when I grew Cascades in my backyard, they were just like the Cascades that I would go out and buy that were grown here in the Pacific Northwest. So, Well, maybe that's I mean, just your magic touch. <laughs> maybe it's just my imagination. Uh, yeah, I mean, Terroir is going to play a, a part for sure. Uh, for instance, uh, You know, when we were talking to Stan on the interview from the conference last week, I mentioned something about getting some Chinook from Michigan. And before I could describe them, he said, and they tasted like pineapple, didn't they? And it's like, yeah, that's it exactly, man. Chinook grown here in the Northwest is very piney and resinous. These Chinook that I had gotten from Michigan had a very definite fruity pineapple note to them. So, you know... How different your hops will be growing in San Diego versus more traditional growing areas, we can't tell you how different they'll be or in what way, but I'm pretty certain that they'll be different somehow.
1: Oh, yeah, more more than likely. All right, so next question comes from Nick Golden out of Ohio, who emailed us to say, I was wondering if you guys had any thoughts on if the cryo hops freezing process might eliminate the enzymes that create hop creep. Extreme cold, presumably its liquid nitrogen process, could potentially denature the enzymes that purportedly cause this hop creep. Might be worth an experiment, and it might be, but we had to ask.
0: Yeah, it might be, and it might not be. Uh, we uh, talked to our good friend Alex Rumbles from Yakima Chief Hops about this, and uh, Alex said, uh, no, not directly. There's there's no uh, reason that uh, they would cause less hop creep from being frozen. But what might be the case, as Drew alluded to in the previous question, is that uh, in cryo hops, pretty much all the vegetal material is removed. So you're just left with the lupulin glands. And there are a lot of the enzymes that cause hop creep in that vegetation. So it seems like, you know, um, cryo hops might cause less hop creep, but not because they've been frozen necessarily, but because after they were frozen, the part that contained most of the diastatic enzymes that cause hop creep have been removed. Right,
1: yeah. So, again, because it's concentrated uh, Lupin and not so much the concentrated Brax, uh, we're pretty good shape with uh, cryo, at least we think.
0: Yeah, we, we think. Uh, when I did my, uh, my hop creep experiment, I just used regular T90 pellets, but I couldn't make hop creep happen anyway. So, uh, you know, I don't know if it would have been different if I'd used cryo. Uh, Dane, let's just face it. You're you're hop creep challenged. (laughs) Yeah, right. I am not a hop creep. All
1: right. Well, now it's time to get away from creep and just go into some regular questions about hops. Right.
0: And uh, our first one comes from Jimmy Jacobson via Facebook, who says, when pairing or grouping hops, is it best to stay on one quarter, a half, or anywhere in the hop flavor wheel? Would it be best to add a certain portion at all additions, perhaps minus the bittering, or do separate additions? Will one method give complexity and another make it brown? As in the famous Van Halen brown sound. Uh, okay, the other question is, when looking at a hop or yeast description and the terms seem vague, fruity, earthy, spicy, floral, phenolic, how can you get an idea of what fruit, what spice in the spice cabinet, what flower to expect, and use as a reference to know you are properly assessing the esters or phenols of a new yeast or that you're getting a decent overall impression of a certain hops profile? Wow, man, there's some real kind of like uh, heavy there, questions. There's some there. chunks in here. Yeah.
1: Um, all right, so, yeah, when talking about how to pair up hops, um, I, I tend to uh, like to stay like for like. Um, I don't tend to cross over boundaries in the flavor wheels a lot. Like so, again, I'm not usually mixing, say, you know, piney and citrusy. I might blend piney and spicy, but whenever you see, like, you know, uh, piney and tropical, that to me starts to feel like they're far enough apart that they're not re- going to work very well. Um, a lot of it's touch and feel. I, I wish I had a nice scientific method to say, on the hop wheel, don't go more than 90 degrees away from your flavor because i don't think anybody's thought that far through it now on hop and yeast descriptions and sort of the generic terms that you're seeing there and how do you associate with something that's in your cabinet to my mind you get two choices either you go and brew those things and start building up your your yeast vocabulary your sorry your flavor vocabulary and do it that way. Of course, that's expensive. Or the other one is actually break down and see if you can't get a more detailed description of the chemical compounds found in those hops. Uh, and you'll find this a lot more with hops than you will with yeast. But the chemical compounds, and then you can actually go and you can take a look and say, okay, that, that says geranol, linonol, and all these other hop characters. Geranol smells like this. Limonol smells like this, right? So you'll you'll be able to use that to actually kind of get a better sense. But again, even then, I don't think you're really going to get a perfect sense until you actually use them.
0: Yeah, I I agree completely, man. Um, You know, the only way you're ever going to really know is to just take a guess, make a leap and brew with them.
1: There we go. Final hop question comes in from Mark Winters, who emailed us to ask, hello, Denny and Drew. I have a question regarding hops. Attending homebrewcom has left me with a plethora of wonderful new hops to brew with. My only issue is that they're all generally big, dank, juicy, American hops, Mosaic, Cryo, Cascade, Laurel, Cryo, and Sabro, associated with IPA, and I tend to brew more subtle, German-style beers. I am looking for recommendations on how to incorporate some of these hops into German-style beers without just chucking in two tons of dry hops that would completely destroy the style, like 90% of the dry hop pills out there. I'm not a big hazy IPA guy, so I would love to avoid brewing that style as much as possible. Any advice?
0: Well, yeah. I mean, the obvious answer is to brew a West Coast IPA or, or American Pale Ale, something like that. If you want to stay true to your uh, German beer styles, these hops are just not going to work for that. Uh, that's just all there is to it. Uh, you might be able to make a, an interesting variation on a German Pils or something like that with some of them, but you know, they're not. They're just not appropriate for that. I mean, you you can't use every ingredient in every beer because some of them just don't work well for it. Uh now if you had picked up some of the American nobles, I've found that those work pretty nicely in German style lagers, give you a little twist without being so obvious that it throws it completely out of the style you're expecting. But the cryo hops, uh not so much, I'm afraid. Yeah, and for my
1: my take on this, what I would say is if you're gonna stick with Pilsners. Which I totally get. If you're a Pilsner fanatic, you're a Pilsner fanatic. It's just like I'm a Saison fanatic. If you're going to stick with Pilsners, the biggest thing you have to do is look at, I and mean, look at what most Americans tend to do. We tend to step on the gas. So if you're going to use these, you have to use a extraordinarily like hand. And by that, I mean, I'm talking say a quarter of an ounce in your beer because I think anything more than that, and you're just going to run roughshod over everything else. Now, at the same time, it might be nice to have a hoppy American German pills, but just don't resist the temptations. You are going to be using a lot less than you think you're you're supposed to be.
0: Yeah, and you know, it's just like I was saying, it, it comes down to what you're looking for. If you want to stick in the authentic German line, don't use them at all. I wouldn't even use them lightly. Uh, quarter ounce. I mean, you know, sure, maybe toss them in as part of your bittering addition or something like that. But other than that, it's not really going to make any difference. And I would save them for something they're appropriate for and you can really get the most out of them. There you go. All right. I think it's time for a break before we move on to our next set of questions. It is indeed time for a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking recipes. But before that, here are some messages from our sponsors. Yakima Chief Hops has the tools for your homebrew hop playbook. From classic favorites to the next exciting hop product out of the YCH R&D Lab. Partnering with growers and brewers to create a robust hop supply chain from propagation to pint, YCH is the source for exciting experimental hop varieties. Explore new flavors and aromas with HBC 586, which provides an immense fruit medley aroma including mango, citrus, and herbal notes. Get creative with HBC 630, overflowing with tropical citrus flavors that can only be described as fruity and fortified with sophisticated woody notes. Or discover new takes on your favorite recipes with HBC 638, brimming with citrus and tropical aromas with hints of sweet aromatic, herbal, and stone fruit. Learn more at yakimachief.com. The Brew Deck Podcast
1: features exclusive interviews with your favorite brewers and suppliers. Each episode highlights new trends and brewing tips from leaders in the industry to inspire your next brew. Listen to the Brew Deck Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: back everybody drew is going to take a stab at answering the first of the recipe questions and it comes from brenton via email and brenton says almost five years ago i read an article on the daily mail site about the discovery of a long life elixir the article talked about how this elixir uses ginger root aloe vera and saffron this got my creative juices going and i sat down nearly five years ago and created the beer recipe About a month after creating the recipe, I moved and was not able to use my 3-Kegel herm system as I lived on a third-story apartment. You coward. A couple months ago, (laughs) my brewing woes came to an end when I bought my first house. Over the course of those five years, I've been tweaking and creating various recipes I wanted to try as soon as I could brew again. Now that we've mostly settled in, I've done a Heady Topper clone, which is set to bottle tomorrow, And this long-life elixir beer is next in my brew queue. The questions I have are, do you have any recommendation on when I should introduce aloe vera, a 32-ounce unsweetened consumable can of juice? Also, do you have recommendations on when I should add the dehydrated ginseng root and saffron? mash, boil, fermentation. I was considering the gentian root as a 30-minute addition on a 60-minute boil and flame out for the saffron. Okay, well, one,
1: don't read the Daily Mail. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Or as it's known around here in my house, the Daily Fail. Um, but looking at the recipe question itself, all right, so on the gentin root, gentin root is a fairly strong flavor. Uh, you see it all the time in, say, tonic water. So I would say putting it in the boil is fine. Uh, I'd probably only go for about, let's like, say, 10, 20 minutes uh, for the extract. I wouldn't go with a full 30. Saffron, I would actually say with the saffron, make a tea with it because t- the saffron's whole thing is both the color and that sort of... V- Hard to describe vague aromatic thing. And if you put it in at flame out, I'm afraid you're going to, just going to lose it all in the fermentation. And it's expensive enough that you don't want to lose it. So I would make a tea with it and add that in, into secondary. I would also do the same thing with the aloe vera juice. So let that go in, you know, either as you're racking into secondary or at the very end of primary fermentation before you rack into package. So that way you can preserve both the qualities of that sort of thing. Um, it's kind of an interesting idea you're right on the verge of what I think is one of the hot topics right now in the brewing industry is, which is the whole wellness beer idea. Uh, you're seeing more and more of this. And at some point in time, I may talk about hard seltzer over on the brew files. If it's not going to kill Denny. It's uh,
0: okay. I just won't be there. Yeah.
1: But like, for instance, here in LA, we have a brewery called uh wave maiden and it's actually, they're contracting out of a, or partner brewing out of a separate facility and All of their beers are based around the idea of infusing herbs and whatnot as medicinal type tonics, uh, but in beer form. Which, if we remember our history, or at least our vague supposed history, is part of humanity's treatment of beer, mead, and wine over the the course of time. So there you go. Just to recap, 20 minutes on the Genton. Uh, I would put the saffron in as a tea in secondary, and I would put the aloe vera in probably at the end of primary
0: and yeah that sounds about right to me and my only other comment is no matter what you do beer is never going to be healthy right well i mean that's sort of
1: the oddball thing about this whole wellness beer thing but here we go
0: yeah really Okay, the next one is for Drew, also comes from Peter Boyle in San Francisco, and Pete says, I'm going to attempt to brew your Saison Vin variant. Drew insists that I say it with the American pronunciation. That is Pilsner, 10 pounds, wheat, 1 pound, a 48-ounce can of Merlot concentrate, or maybe Merlot concentrate if we're going for the American pronunciation. Uh, online, I read that is 68 Bricks. When I enter this beer into Beersmith, the OG is 1069, which with a good Saison fermentation, if it finishes at 1.005, puts it at 8.5%. Does that sound right?
1: It it sounds pretty close, and I'm going to have to have people double-check me on the math on this. So I went and I double-checked. The concentrate that he's talking about is the same stuff I recommend all the time, which is the Alexander's Sun Country concentrate. And again, I would never use it to make wine, but I love adding it to beer. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, And the 48 can, it comes out at 68 bricks, and it's about a half gallon at that size in that can. And if you dilute it down to a gallon and a half, you know, it comes down to 22 bricks, right, which is normal wine strength. And so if I think about this, if you're going into, say, a five-gallon batch, th- that actually comes out to 6.8 bricks being added. Uh, or if you're going to a five-and-a-half, then it's you know six bricks. And so that means it's like roughly what 1024, 1024 1027. Uh, that's being added to the to the beer uh, from your original gravity. And so if you say with 11 pounds of grain, you've got about 75% efficiency. Let's just assume you're there. Uh, that the 11 pounds of grain would give you a beer at about 1054. So when you add the grape juice to it, or the the must concentrate. That would take you up to say another 27 points, which then means that you're somewhere in like about the 1080, 1081 range. And which means that with the proper Saison ferment, uh, you're going to be higher than eight and a half.
0: Yeah, you're going to be in the 10 or 11% area.
1: Yeah. And of course, I might be wrong about this because of things like miscability concerns, or I don't know, maybe I screwed up a volume somewhere in my head, but my recollection of the the Saison Vin, Saison Vaughn, however you want to say it, um, was. It was a much bigger beer than I expected, and tasty, but also sort of a couch beer, as in it put you into the couch.
0: I was gonna say you drink it and you don't get up off the couch for the rest of the day. Pretty much,
1: but it's still one of my, (laughs) it's still one of my favorite uh, versions of the saisons that I've done, just because it, well, I mean, it plays into that whole regionality concept.
0: Right. Uh, any any other thoughts, Denny? Uh, no, I would – I mean, your math sounds okay to me. Yeah, the math the math looks okay, so I think that it's going to be a very, very strong Saison. Yes, but so wonderful.
1: Well, of course, if my math is wrong, people, please let me know. Oh, yeah, they will. Next question is from Rob Valenti in New Jersey, who emailed us to say, I have a friend who acquired – some corn whiskey when he was living in North Carolina two years ago. He's been aging it in a small 10-liter oak barrel since then. He wants to empty it soon and reuse the barrel to age a beer that we make together. He and I agree that we don't want to do a stout. Yay. I made a Kentucky Common last year that he liked, and we were thinking of scaling it up to imperialize it into the 9-10% to 10% ABV range. The recipe for 5 gallons is as follows. 6 pounds of 2-row, two 2.5 pounds of flaked maize, 1 pound of flaked rye, 4 ounces of C120, 2 ounces of roasted barley, 12 grams of galena hops, because I couldn't get cluster, at 60 minutes for about 25 IBUs, and the rest at 10 minutes for aroma. I was thinking of increasing the flaked corn to 51% of the grain bill, and reducing the two row to about 45% to mimic a traditional bourbon mash. I would leave a little rye, some C120, and a touch of roasted barley for color. Everything I've been reading about corn as an adjunct that recommends not going over 20 to 30% of the total grain bill. Do I have to worry about mash conversion or any other for unforeseen problems with that much corn? Thanks for any advice that you can offer. Denny?
0: I don't think you have to worry about conversion. Uh, you have plenty of pale malt in there to convert even that much corn, you know. Uh, it's, it's just not going to be an issue in that regard. Yeah, mo-
1: modern modern pale malts have enough enzymatic action in them to convert,
0: like, the ocean. Yeah, <laughs> I was trying to think of a, of a proper uh, analogy there. Well, I'm not sure I thought of one either. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think I would have picked that one. I I think what you might be up against is the flavor aspect uh, with that much corn. You know, I I understand that you want to mimic a bourbon mash, but, dude, you're making beer. You're not making bourbon. So do a beer mash. Don't do a bourbon mash. I, I think that that would probably be the best advice I could offer.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you can... Make the nods toward the bourbon mash, which of course you're already doing with this Kentucky common recipe to begin with. I don't think I would take it up to 51%. Uh, if you remember from the IPA episode a couple of weeks back, yeah, you know, when we tasted that one that had not that much corn in it, but came across in in the beer, it had mm-hmm. a, a very corn-like sweetness to it, and that was still what like 15, 20% at Something the most. Something like that, yeah, yeah. So I'd be I'd be a little hesitant just for flavor issues to go up to 51%. However, having said that, you do you. You're still going to get a beer. It's just going to be very weird with the, the barrel characters added to it as well. But that may be what you want. And also talking about trends, that's another trend right now where people are trying to come up with sort of cocktail inspired beers. So, you know, like an old Manhattan beer.
0: Yeah. I mean, and, but a Manhattan beer is a lot different than trying to do a bourbon mash for a beer. Uh, oh, you know- yeah. Undoubtedly. Yeah. But, dude, you know, if if it's something you want to try, go for it. You know, we're not going to tell you not to, but uh, I, I think that you may be disappointed. Yeah, maybe. The next question comes from our good buddy and Sam Adams long shot winner, Eric Pierce. Eric Pierce says, I'm really enjoying the new book. Not naming names, but there are a number of homebrewing books out there where the authors have admitted they haven't actually brewed all the recipes in their books. <laughs> Have you guys, either you or Denny, actually brewed the recipes in Simple Home Brewing? Yes. Yeah, I think so. I, I don't think in that one that there's anything that we haven't brewed. Now, that may not be true for all of our books, but uh, well, Simple Simple Home Brewing, I think we've actually brewed everything in there. Well,
1: and also just to you know sort of pull back the lid on some of this stuff, I mean, most of the time, if it's a recipe that I that I haven't brewed, for instance, um, which I've tried to do as rarely as possible, it's almost always a tweak on a recipe I have brewed. So, like, I'm never inventing something just out of whole cloth and saying, here, go make this.
0: Yeah, right. But I I guarantee you, when the editor says, uh, we need more recipes in here, and it's due in two days, uh, you're not going to have time to brew everything. Yep. All right, Eric goes on with, I recently brewed a double batch of Table Strength Saison and split it. One fermenter got BE134 and the other got BE134 plus YE3724. During fermentation I noticed the strangest thing. The batch with the blend got off to an earlier start because I used the vitality starter technique. It was actively fermenting in six hours. The BE134 batch was only just a direct pitch of dormant yeast and that took a whole day to get going. The weird part is that the 134 only batch finished actively fermenting, but the blend kept going and going and going for days after I was hearing a bubble bloop out of the airlock. Temperatures were started at 64 Fahrenheit, held for a day, and then ramped up a degree every 12 hours or so for five days, and then stopped at 74 degrees Fahrenheit. I was going to go higher, but I got busy. In the end, they had the exact same final gravity of 1.006. Kind of weird. Any ideas why the blend acted that way? I would have thought that one would have just taken over if it was more aggressive, but it didn't seem to behave that way. By the way, the blend turned out very nice, a little more character than BE-134 alone, as hope. When the brew files first started, I pitched the idea of an episode about brewing with cannabis by you guys. Then he replied that he had never had one he liked. In my case, I've never had one figuring that it would just taste like bong water. But there are people out there doing stuff with beer and cannabis and terpenes more and more. Any chance you might change your mind on this topic? Just curious. There's a lot of stuff there from Eric to cover, man. Well, yeah,
1: but Eric's a special case, so. He is, yeah. All
0: right, so on the uh, BE-134 Solo versus 3724,
1: I mean, both of those strains are uh, diastaticus strains. But the only thing I can think of is, I mean, to to the way I think about 3724 is an aggressive fermenter. So I think what you're just saying is that you had these two yeast acting sort of synergistically to kind of keep, you know, keep everything going. Um, I'm not surprised that you had a, a difference in behavior because of that.
0: Yeah, uh, I'm not either, man, because you basically used two different yeasts. I mean, there's no reason to suspect that they would behave the same.
1: Yeah, although I do think it's interesting they both ended up with the same final gravity. Now I can't remember Eric had promised to to bring this to HBC and he did end up delivering me a bottle as an apology for the ukulele fest. <laughs> and I, I Eric, I don't remember if it was the blend or the one thirty four. I think it was the blend, but I did have that beer and it was fantastic. Uh, you know, I I'd put it up right there with uh, one of my Saisons. So good job there for you. <laughs> okay no more hey look uh, humility ill placed is not humility yeah now on the cannabis thing yeah i've had a few cannabis beers because again uh, medical marijuana and now legal recreational marijuana and even going beyond the the flavor impacts i'm not really a huge fan of combining the effects of those things um but as for doing an episode of the brew files on there I think we still need to wait and see, you know, what exactly is going to happen with the world of marijuana. And also the fact that, I mean, look, not everybody wants to talk about marijuana. So uh, now also going back to the terpenes, though, you are absolutely right. There are a number of people out there who are making flavor extracts that from both, you know, uh, uh, hemp and from marijuana, as well as from hops, like we talked about on the show. And, I mean, really what they're doing is they're pulling out the same sort of essential oils. So, yeah, that's all essential oil stuff. That's interesting. It's another technique. Although, uh, frankly, trying to do things with marijuana terpenes is going to be expensive.
0: <laughs> for, not for some people. Um, you know, and since I made that statement, I have had one infused beer that I did like. Uh, Hemperer. Is that from New Belgium?
1: That's yeah, that was from New Belgium.
0: Yeah, right. And I I really enjoyed it. A lot of people don't like it at all because of, I guess, the reasons that I do like it. Uh, I thought it was pretty good. Obviously it had no psychoactive effect whatsoever. Uh, but, you know, it, I, I really did enjoy the flavor of it. But like Drew said, we're going to have to wait and see where this is going, uh, see some more people doing it, get some more examples uh, before we do an episode about it. But, you know, you never know. There may be one coming down the road.
1: There you go. All right. And our next question comes from David Evans from Greenville, South Carolina, who texted us at 626-765-1-ALE. 626-765-1-ALE. And left his name. And left his name. Yay, thank you. And he says, I am currently fermenting a raspberry wheat with 44% Pilsner, 33% white wheated malt, 11% Carafoam, 11% Caramunic uh, 2, USO five, Denny's favorite. <laughs> <laughs> and yesterday, when I took a gravity reading before adding my raspberries, it tasted pretty bad. It fermented one week and was down to 10.10. I can't really describe the flavors other than not desirable. Although I'm pretty <laughs> sure it was an infection or acetaldehyde, maybe diacetyl. I remembered that when I was doing my water chemistry additions to my RO water, I was adding three grams of calcium chloride in a four-gallon batch. But when I took the negative weight of what I added, it said I'd used nine grams. I know, I need a better balance. Yep. Could it be that this much calcium chloride is making it taste bad? Or was what I was tasting probably just the beer still in a green state? To my knowledge, I don't know what green beer tastes like. If it is the water chemistry, is there anything I can add at this point to neutralize it?
0: Any help or advice you can give would be much appreciated. Well, David, you didn't make it easy on us. It's really hard to diagnose a problem like this if you can't actually taste the beer or if if the brewer can't really give you a real good description of it. So I'm just going to be making some uh, wags here. Um, I don't think it's the calcium chloride, but because I don't know what you were tasting, I can't really say for sure. Nine grams in a four-gallon batch is definitely getting up there but i don't think that that's enough to really throw the flavor off but that's about all i can tell you because uh, you, uh, we really can't diagnose your your problem any more than that
1: yeah it's always tricky to do this remotely without a beer i mean heck sometimes it's really tricky to do it with a beer um but yeah i mean green beer i mean let's let's back up onto the green beer thing green beer yeah it's not a pleasant taste uh, you know, when it's all kind of raw and un, sort of melded and things are still being cleaned up. But let's see, you said it was one week. Um, It was down to 10.10. 10. I mean, to my That's not thinking, all that green. Yeah, that's not all that green. Although USO5 does have a tendency to stay up. So yeah. it could be that a lot of what you were getting was yeast flavor, too.
0: Yeah, did it taste like peaches? If so, it was the yeast.
1: Well, not just peaches, but did it taste like bread? Did it taste like Marmite? Actually, yeah. I mean, I like Marmite and Vegemite, but a lot of people don't. So, right.
0: um,
1: yeah, I would I would say I'd be curious to see if the beer ever changed its character and got to a place where you were happier with it.
0: And, and, and so, if, if you can maybe do a bit of research and describe the flavor a little bit better, then I, I think that that would really help in the future, too. All right. Last recipe question. All right. This one is for Drew says, I'm a long-time listener of your podcast. Your recipe designs are genius. Oh, Jesus, don't tell him that.
2: <laughs>
0: and I would really appreciate your input on my attempt at a Steagle Radler clone for my wife. Ooh, we had a really good Radler recently. Mm-hmm. Read right from the can itself, A Steagle Radler is 60% grapefruit soda and 40% Steagle lager. I have five gallons of Czech Pilsner kegged and four one-and-a-half-liter bottles of Haritos grapefruit soda on hand. I would like to use my two-and-a-half-gallon keg for this clone. So is it as simple as blending one-and-a-half gallons of the grapefruit soda with one gallon of my Czech pills? Or should I just add a bunch, maybe four ounces, of grapefruit zest soaked in vodka to the Pilsner and forget about blending in the Haritos? I already have the grapefruit zest tincture made. What would you do? I would really value your input. I know what I'd do. What do you, what would you do? Well, I'm going to give two answers here. What would I do? I would use the grape,
1: grapefruit tincture, but that's mostly because I don't like grapefruit soda and I don't like, uh, I don't like sugary sweetness. So I, I tend to, I tend to look down a lot on rattlers, although the one that we did just have was really nice. Yeah. Um, so if you are wanting to go for Steagle, then yes, use the, use the Horitos put it into the keg and uh, blend the beer on top of it. Make sure you're not picking up a lot of oxygen, you know, do everything as close transferred as you can, you know, so like put the harritos in the, in the keg and then uh, flush the keg again. Um blend that together and be uh, very gentle with it. I would also expect that you're going to want to drink that fast because more than likely your beer still has yeast in it, which is going to go after the sugar and the Doritos. Me, I would, yeah, I, I would I would prefer it if it was, you know, the grapefruit extract, and if I really wanted to get the alcohol down, which, of course, is half the point of a Rattler, or maybe most of the point of a Rattler, uh, then I would add carbonated water to it, no, none of the sugar. And that would get around my, I don't like sugary sweet things. So, that's what I would do, but yeah, I think just baseline, you're on the right track just using the and, and the, the beer. Cause after all, that's pretty much all Stiegel does
0: too. Yeah, right. And, you know, and. I think that if you use the extract, what you're going to be making is a grapefruit Pilsner and not a Rattler because I know, a Rattler I want... really is the soda. I mean, you know, yeah. so it, it depends on what you want to get out of it. If you want to get Drew's beer or if you want to get your beer.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, to, uh, my taste would be to skip over the Haritos and use the grapefruit extract. But, yeah, it's a grapefruit beer at that point and not a Rattler. So you won't you won't get the benefits of the the rattlerness. Right. So, yeah. and
0: I, you know, and I, I forgot to mention that, that that question comes from Luke McLean. So thanks for challenging us, Luke. And now it's time for us to take a break. And when we come back, we'll be giving you some technique questions. Please stick around and listen to these messages. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association. Now through August 31st, boost your brewing IQ with a free book when you join or renew your American Homebrewers Association membership. Choose from three books by some of the best brewing educators. Ray Daniels' Designing Great Beers, the ultimate guide to brewing classic beer styles, or from Stan Hieronymus, Brewing Local, American Grown Beer, or For the Love of Hops, the practical guide to aroma, bitterness, and the culture of hops. Visit homebrewersassociation.org experimental to redeem this limited-time offer. The quintessential mark of a summer beer, hands down, is easy drinking. So gear up with Y Yeast's latest seasonal release, Session Season, featuring ten eighty-seven Y-East Bohemian Ale Blend, seventeen sixty-eight English special bitter, and the homebrewing favorite thirty-four sixty-three Forbidden Fruit. These strains are selected to highlight a wide variety of styles in the 2 to 5% alcohol range. Go ahead, craft your crushable lawnmower beer, a classic pub bitter, or a wit to pair with beer-battered fish tacos on the patio. Your next summer brew can be as clean or sophisticated as the occasion calls for without the demanding OG or ABV. Head over to yeastlab.com for our latest advice on brewing session beers and to find out which styles pair best with these strains. Available now through the end of September. New y East apparel and goods are also available at store.yeastlab.com. Let's get brewing.
1: And our first technique question comes from John Meyer in New Zealand, who emailed us to say, I know you have a Q&A podcast coming up, so perhaps you can help me with this. Could you explain what you mean by batch size? I find this a somewhat confusing term when looking at published recipes that could mean different things to different brewers. Does it mean volume into fermenter, volume post boil, or possibly volume into packaging?
0: Denny. Um, you know, I usually take it to mean volume into the fermenter. Uh I guess maybe some people might think of it as volume into packaging, which should be pretty darn close to the volume in the fermenter, uh, you know, and volume post-boil is going to be the same thing as volume into your fermenter. So uh, the answer is yes.
1: Yeah. yeah. I I think when I do it, I'm usually talking batch into fermenter, and that's the reason why I'm almost always talking about five-and-a-half gallon batch sizes because, i going to have five and a half gallons in the fermenter, so I can have five gallons. Greener.
0: Exactly. Okay. I do the same thing. Yep. All right. Next question. All right. This one's for you, and it's an audio question, so let's take a listen to Gus Chambers.
2: Hey, Denny and Drew. It's Gus Chambers from Cherry Valley, Illinois. I have a quick question for you guys. By the way, I appreciate all, all that you guys do. I hope everything's going well. Um, quick question. Um, if you've had any experience with checking gravity readings with a kegged and carbonated beer versus the same beer, straight out of the fermenter. So kegged and carbonated beer in the keg, take a gravity reading versus the same beer straight out of the fermenter. I'm guessing the carbonated uh, beer would be different than the beer straight out of the fermenter. I'm just curious if you guys have any experience with doing like a side-by-side, like right when you keg it before it's carbonated, take a gravity reading versus an already carved beer of the same beer in the keg, taking that gravity reading out of the keg. Curious if you guys have any experience with that. I appreciate your time, and thanks again. Have a good one.
1: Yeah, the answer is if you don't decarb the beer coming out of the keg, then, yeah, you're going to see a difference in the reading because the beers are going to essentially float, the or the bubbles are essentially going to float the hydrometer. However, if you degas the beer, which is what you're supposed to do, then, no, there won't be a difference.
0: Yeah, exactly. You know, uh, degas the beer, and you'll see exactly the same reading. Uh, next question comes from Mike Jones and Moose Jaw. Oh, he Moose says, Jaw. We've had questions from Moose Jaw before, I think.
1: Yep, well, exactly. It says, have you guys ever played around with cold mashing? I'm really curious about this and think maybe making some great low-tasting uh, ABV beers. Would love to hear about your experiences with this. Denny. Uh,
0: you know, my first thought was, no, I've never done that. Then I thought back and it was like, yeah, I did do an experiment many, many years ago, back in the days of... Uh, Homebrew Digest, when the idea of cold-steeping your grains first came up, uh, Marianne Gruber with Brees was talking about it, and George Fix. And while most people usually think of it in terms of doing it with dark malts or something like that, Marianne had mentioned that you could cold-steep Munich, even, you know, or probably even pale malt, although she had mentioned Munich, so that was what I tried. I cold-steeped a couple pounds of Munich, then when you uh, gradually bring it up to a boil, it goes through conversion. Uh, believe it or not, because all the enzymes are in the liquid, not in the grain. And uh, right, so I, I brought the liquid up to a boil, and sure enough, it converted. Uh, I got wort out of it, and it was a it was a very interesting grainy type of flavor. So, you know, Mike, if you want to play around with it, go for it. The the concept is definitely valid.
1: Yeah, and we. We do have Eric Pierce out there. Eric, I just answered a bunch of your questions, so Eric's supposed to be designing an experiment for us for this.
0: So I wonder I wonder how cold he's thinking about with cold mashing. I mean I did it at room temp, uh which I considered cold compared to normal mash temp. Well or compared to normal room temperatures in moose jaw. Yeah, right. Next question is for you. It's a technique question from Brandon Christensen. And he says, do you think using a keg to do no chill would work? How about also fermenting in it, too, and transferring under pressure to a smaller keg when it's done?
1: Yes, I do. One caveat. I would uh, be cautious about sealing it up completely because I haven't done the, the vacuum calculations to know whether or not you might cause damage to your keg, um, at least in a normal keg with... Yeah, you know, no sort of airlock or anything else on it. You know, if you're just like sealing up a, a corny keg tight without releasing the pressure somehow, I'd be a little worried about that. Um, I know, like when we do the Pico brews, you know, Pico brew has that special lid that fits on top of the keg. And that's usually how I've done that there. Uh, Denny, I think you've done the same thing, right?
0: Uh, yeah, I, I have. And I didn't use that special lid, but, uh, brewing in my zymatic, I've, uh, taken a a two-and-a-half to three-gallon batch, put it into a keg, sealed the keg up using the normal lid, and uh, I've sometimes let it sit at room temperature. Sometimes I've thrown it into my chest freezer. I didn't do any calculations, but it turns out that they were unnecessary because the keg did not collapse. Uh, You definitely need to uh, remember to pull the pressure release before you can get the lid off, though. Uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, it works fine. Uh, how about fermenting in a keg and transferring it to another?
1: Everything else there is just normal. I mean, that's, I already do all that in a 10
0: Yeah, that's sure. what I was going to say. We, we both are uh, fermenting kegs and transferring it under pressure to another keg for serving. So yeah, you can definitely do that. And again, when I was doing the two and a half, three gallon batch with the Zymatic, that is exactly what I did. So go for it, Brandon. I think you'll be fine. And our next question comes in from Chris Heron via email, who says, Got back to
1: the hobby post-baby finally, and looking at brewing for the summer. My wife and I usually have a barbecue in August for friends and family, which I normally brew for, and have always had good feedback. However, not all get to drink all that are on offer, as they will be driving. BrewDog Nanny State and Adam's Low Alcohol Ghost Ship have shown me that low-alcohol beers don't have to be thin and flavorless. Looking for any advice you have for brewing good, low-alcohol beer, defined in the UK as... Zero point five percent ABV and below that i'd be able to serve
0: this is a tough one man uh, you know we've been we've been talking a lot about uh, low alcohol no alcohol beers recently uh, in our last episode from HBC we had Chris Saunders on talking about his technique to do it. You know the lowest i 've ever gone is about three percent, so I really can't give you many tips on how to Dealcoholize the beer or something like that. But I will tell you that in terms of the beer itself, the two things I've discovered from making low-gravity batches are, number one, use quality ingredients uh, because you're not using many of them. You want to get the maximum amount of flavor out of them. So use really, really good quality stuff. And number two is concentrate on mouthfeel. As you mentioned, a lot of them can be thin, uh, so you want to, uh, I mean, I use like a lot of crystal when I make these beers, uh, a lot relatively. Um, and I also have discovered that here's another plug that why I used 1450 is really, really great for a low alcohol beer because of the mouthfeel it leaves to the beer. So- I
1: suspect one of these days we're going to find something that Danny doesn't
0: think 1450 does well, but that might take a while. Yeah. I, I don't know if I'd use it for a Pilsner, but <laughs> and I probably wouldn't use it uh, as like a salad dressing or something like that.
1: Right, if you go and you look at, for instance, the BrewDog nanny State recipe, which is referenced here, um, I mean, that beer is like a handful of malts. And when I say a handful of malts, I mean, it's like nine or nine different malts, the, one of which is Munich, which is only a third of a pound for a five-gallon batch. And then the rest of it's all specialties. So Cara, Crystal, Ambers, Dark Crystals, Chocolate, Wheat, and Rye. So, I mean, they're obviously spending a lot of time focusing on, okay, what can we do to get, you know, more residual oomph into the beer? Uh, the other thing I would also recommend is uh, go back to the last episode of the main show and, and listen to Chris Saunders from Escarpment Labs talking about some of the stuff that he's doing to play around with making dealkalized beer or low-alcohol beer. Uh Those are still experimental techniques, and they're still very tricky, particularly if you don't have access to a yeast laboratory. But it's very interesting to see where all of this is going.
0: Yeah, right. Uh, One thing I've never been a fan of is heating the beer to drive off the alcohol. The beer always seems to suffer for it.
1: Yeah, it does. It always ends up tasting like bad tea.
0: Yeah, exactly. Or cooked beer, and you can just kind of guess how that tastes.
1: And uh, last question, this one's uh, for the technique section, at least. It comes from uh, Galen McDougal, and this is for you as well. And Galen writes in, uh, hello, Denny and Drew. Keep up the work. Great work, guys. It took me a while to get into the podcast, but now I'm totally hooked. Yeah, it took us a while to get into it, too. Well, so I recently listened to episode 64 of The Brew Files, where Denny is tasting Drew's IPAs and was particularly intrigued by the brief discussion on gypsum and how it adds crispness. I believe you called it, Drew to your LA water for that brute-style IPA. I've been homebrewing for over 6 years now, and I'm also a SoCal native, using carbon-filtered garden-hosed water for each brew. Sometimes I add gypsum to my mash and sparge water, and sometimes I don't. But I've never really been able to figure out what it does. I'm not a chemist. Neither am I. Uh, Despite searching the forums and archives online, I found information on gypsum is pretty vague and not super simple. They say it lowers pH, but I haven't found that to be very evident with my pH meter. Does it add minerals that somehow clarify the water? Google says it adds hardness, but our water is already really hard to my knowledge, so how would adding more affect the finished product? If you use enough of it, does it really result in a crisper, finished beer in your experience? If so, I'm all for that. Can you please expound upon Gypsum's intended purposes and best methods of use? Thank you very much for your time and efforts. Hope to run into you person one of these days so that we can share a homebrew.
0: Hey. Always will. Yeah, me too, Galen. So uh when I started brewing <clears throat> 21 plus years ago, uh everybody said gypsum enhances the hoppiness in a beer. And I found that to be true, but it turns out that there's a lot more to it. And for years, I struggled to kind of figure out what that was. And finally our uh, good friend Martin Boongard put his finger on it when he said gypsum enhances the dry finish in a beer and it's like oh yeah that's exactly what it is and because it seems to dry out the finish of a beer it increases your perception of the bitterness in that beer um it you know it probably does make the water a little harder but not noticeably it may lower the pH in a theoretical sense, but you're gonna to have to use more gypsum than you ever would want to use in order for that to really be an issue. Uh you also mentioned your water is really hard, but you're carbon filtering it, so it shouldn't be hard by the time you use it for brewing. But I I really do believe that the, the perception of dryness that uh, gypsum adds does seem to make the beer feel more crisp in your mouth and kind of like enhances your perception of bitterness. It doesn't increase the bitterness, but it enhances your perception of the bitterness in the beer.
1: Yeah, and plus L.A. water, you know,
0: at least when I pulled it from my house,
1: it's not actually all that hard. I mean, the calcium is like 47 ppm, and the uh, sulfate in terms of the mineral load is only like 76, 78. So those are the two compounds that gypsum will be adding, so neither of those are really out of bounds, right? The calcium is just barely at the minimum level that you want for mash conversion in terms of your enzyme. But effect, if
0: you're so. carbon filtering it, neither of those is really consideration anyway.
1: I, well, I know, but I'm not carbon filtering mine. Okay. You know, so, it, it, which is of course the reason why I also tell people skip the carbon filter, just use a regular white hose and put uh, potassium metabisulfide in there. Yeah, and you're done. Right. Um, but yeah, so th- that's, that's what I'd have to say about the carbon filter or sorry, the, the water and gypsum. Gypsum really just does It punches up the hop flavor, but not because it's doing anything to the hop compounds. It's just impacting your organoleptic sense. Right.
0: And and your dog there agrees with it, too. He always agrees with everything. (laughs) He's a good boy. Okay, we're going to take a quick break here before we get into the yeast questions. And when we come back, it'll be some time for yeasty goodness. So please stick around. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. Piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. The ultimate all in one electric home brewing system is here. The new Grainfather G40 can produce up to 11 gallons of beer and features all the latest advancements in homebrewing technology, including wireless control so you can monitor your brew day from the Grainfather app. With an innovative new grain basket design that improves wort flow, reaching mash efficiencies of 75% or more is easy. The 3,300-watt heating element brings your wort to a boil quickly without any scorching, and the large hop plate filter guarantees that no unwanted grain matter or hop tube reaches your fermenter. Every G40 comes standard with a high powered built in pump that can handle temperatures over 200 degrees Fahrenheit and a full three year warranty that guarantees that you will be able to keep on brewing no matter what. The new Grandfather G40 is available now at your favorite homebrew retailer or online at grandfather.com. We're back for some questions about yeast, and the first one comes from Daniel Noss in Melbourne, Australia. Hey, Daniel, love your city. Drew's going to take this one, and Daniel says, Hi, guys. I really enjoy the podcast, but I have a lot of catching up to do. I'm only up to episode 49, so apologies if this question has been answered before. It's not really a homebrewing question, but something I've been wondering about for a while now. A home brewer or even a commercial brewer can reuse yeast, but only for a limited amount of generations, before the yeast starts to mutate and have different characteristics. How then does a yeast company like y for example, keep producing thousands of yeast vials or packets of the same yeast year after year without changing it? Or for that matter, how does a commercial brewery with its own in-house yeast strain keep producing and propagating the same yeast? I don't think it's an answer that will improve my home brewing, but it's been bugging me nonetheless. I've tried looking for the answer on the internet, but without success. Hey, you don't need you don't need the internet when you got Denny and Drew, right?
1: Aye. Uh, who depend upon the internet just as much as everybody else. So here's the the real trick about it, is yeast companies and people who are holding on to yeast for long term storage, they don't do what you and I do. They're storing their yeast really, really cold. So why yeast or even the big, any of the big yeast companies or big breweries actually farm this workout as well? They will put their strains in cryogenic storage. So what they will do is they'll put it into like, say, stabs or slants or, you know, other sorts of various storage mechanisms. They'll put them under glycerin and then they'll store them at like negative 40 degrees and they'll leave them there dormant. And then just like we do or professional breweries do when they, you know, repitch what they're doing for a while is they're running cultures based on a set of strains that they have moving and periodically either based on QC or policy or, you know, random draw of the wind, mm-hmm. they will go back to those master cultures in the yeast bank and restart the line so that that way they're minimizing their chances of having drift happen over time. And that's what will happen. And sometimes these new yeast strains that we get that are born. They may be the case of like, say somebody had a house culture of say 1056 and kept using it and kept using it and kept using it. And we hear of some brew pubs out there, for instance, like, Oh yes, I've only ever ordered one pitch of yeast and I've reused the same yeast since 1987. Those yeast trains will have drifted over time. Different things will have selected up to the top. And so sometimes those things will re-enter the yeast banks as a brand new thing. So the real answer is basically they keep super cold master lines of the cells. And then periodically go back and restart their cultures based on that.
0: Yeah, there's a couple other things too. Uh, what I learned when I was doing uh, my yeast ranching days, you can look at a yeast culture under a microscope and pick out the good colonies from from the bad ones. So you you can pick out a single good colony and reculture that to to revive your yeast if you're doing it at home, for instance. The other thing is that most commercial breweries. Uh, Farm out their yeast ranching to one of these major yeast companies. For instance, uh, Rogue, which uses its own strain, Pac-Man Yeast, doesn't worry about keeping uh, a master culture there. y yeast does it for them. So Rogue will reuse the yeast for a while, and when they think that it's time for a a new pitch, they'll get a hold of y Yeast and say, hey, send me some of our yeast, will you?
1: Yeah, and one of the ways that, uh, ironically, that homebrewers are disadvantaged, is if you talk to a lot of commercial brewers, they'll tell you that they don't really feel like these yeast cultures that they're using, you know, say like 001 or 1056, really get up to full fermentation profile and, and to full snuff until they're like three to seven generations into repitching, and then they feel like it's at best.
0: Yeah, and I don't, I don't know if I would put an exact number on it, but I really do feel like when I repitch my yeast, I get better performance out of it than I did the first time around.
1: Yep, so there you go. The The real secret, just like Captain America cryogenics <laughs> yeah right all right and then our next question comes from tim shover who asks uh, i'm very far behind in my listening and just caught the shaken not stirred episode oddly enough after a big brew weekend that involved making a big berk, multi-step starter with two packs of yeast on a stir plate it was a half barrel batch not the de facto standard five gallons that seems to be the only reference point for batches in this episode five gallon batches are actually rare for me i typically brew as much as i can in a day because my brew days are few and far between i feel you buddy for reference, I brewed just shy of 40 gallons this weekend on a triple brew day. Oy, now I'm tired. Which leads me, eventually I'll get there, to my question. How does the shake and not stirred method scale up? If it's not about cell counts, how do you know when you've got enough brewers to do your dirty work? I'd like to ditch the stir plate and give this a try. Does Cervasia have any advice for me in terms of scaling this up? 10 to 12, 15 to 20 gallon batches? Another comment from this episode, I frequently use dry yeast and have been 50-50 on rehydrating it. Recently, I switched to the method of rehydrate at the start of the brew day in distilled water. Wait until it fully immerses and I add some wort to it, and usually by the time the brew day is cool, my rehydrated, worted yeast is rocking and starts kicking butt. Probably not the most reproducible, but it has worked
0: out well for me for a few batches of beer. Denny. Okay. So, you know, you could scale up the um, shaken, not stirred from a 5-gallon batch to a 20-gallon batch, but you're going to run into an equipment issue here. The method calls for using a container that is four times the size of the amount of wort you have in it and shaking it until the container is full of foam and pitching your yeast into it. That's for people who aren't familiar with this method yet. So if you were going to go from, say, a 5-gallon batch to a 20-gallon batch, right, that's four times bigger, you would need four quarts or a gallon of wort, and you would need to put that into a 4-gallon container. You know what a 4-gallon container reminds me of? Hmm. A carboy. I would say that if you're going to be doing a big batch like that, you're probably better off brewing a smaller batch of a, you know, moderate gravity beer first and then using the slurry from that for your 20-gallon batch. The advantage to that is that you uh, get more beer out of it. Now, I realize you say that you don't usually do uh, five-gallon batches, but maybe you might want to give it a try, see how that works. Uh, you know, I, that that would be my my way to approach it, first of all. Okay, next thing. Obviously, you well, yeah.
1: Can, can I just uh, toss in there sure. real quick? I mean, you can totally use a five-gallon carboy to do this, uh, although you have to feel safe about the idea that you're going to be shaking the living bejesus out of a five-gallon carb
0: and I'm, carboy. And I'm saying, don't do
1: that. I know. I'm, I'm, but I'm just saying, if you're going to do it. You'd better make sure that you can hold on to a five-gallon carboy because those things are already dangerous enough without you flailing them around.
0: And shaking a five-gallon carboy enough to completely fill it with foam, I I think you would, like, have your arms falling off by the time you get done. Here's a question. Do you think, could
1: you, I mean, okay, obviously there's additional uh, contamination risk doing this, but could you shake individually your your starters and then either leave them in four one-gallon jugs or transfer them to a, a carboy. Yeah, you could. I think you'd lose. I, I think you'd lose the advantage of the foam at that point.
0: Yeah, well, point. I mean, I would. I would just do four separate one gall You know, four separate starters in one gallon containers. I mean, that's that's another option too. Because then you know that you can do those correctly. Uh, there'd be no real need to put it into a five gallon carboy after that. Of course, you just do your starters. In four separate starters. Okay, to your dry yeast method. Uh, You know, if it's working for you, man, then go for it. I think that it's unnecessary what you're doing and might actually even uh, reduce the performance of the yeast. When dry yeast is manufactured, it's coated with the sterols it needs. And remember, that's what you're trying to do when you... uh, when you when you do a yeast starter, you're trying to uh, synthesize sterols that will keep the cell walls flexible and uh, lead to easier cell reproduction. And so when you're trying to rehydrate the yeast and especially put it in wort, what's happening is the yeast is using those sterols before it even gets into your beer. And, you know, in a theoretical sense, that's not a good thing. Uh, if it's working for you, though, I'm not going to tell you not to do it. Uh, I would just say maybe try it the other way and see what happens. There you go. Next question. This one is for Drew, and it comes from Jaime Destas in Madrid. Oh, I'd love to go to Madrid. I brew a lot of Belgian triples, but for some reason the alcohol in a few of them seems to be more noticeable and harsh than I would like it to be. I make a point of pitching at around 18 degrees Celsius, 64 and degrees Fahrenheit, and ferment in a mini-fridge at about 15 degrees C or 59 degrees F. Fridge temp here, not wort temp. Ah, I hadn't caught that Uh before. For the first four days or so. And while the beer doesn't have an I've just had a shot of moonshine alcohol feel to it, the alcohol flavor does seem a bit more uncomfortable to my palate than in good commercial examples of triples. I'm wondering what I can do to reduce the alcohol flavor a little bit and still keep the beer dry and with the ABV the style requires. By the way, I've organized my cellar, but I haven't managed to find any song beers. I'm sorry, man. Don't know what happened. I must have done something wrong. Keep up the great work and make sure to hit me up if you're ever in Spain. Uh, we definitely will.
1: Hey, look, I want to go to Spain if for nothing else to enjoy the gin tonic culture there. <laughs> um, So look at this. I think one of the key things, and Denny, Denny just pointed it out because I think we both missed it on the first read-through, is the wort, wort fermentation temperature, having it at basically 60 degrees Fahrenheit in the fridge, but not measuring the wort, um, first thing to look at is that's a possibility. Um, the other thing to, you know, so you really want to have the, the yeast controlled, the, the wort temperature controlled down because remember during a high active fermentation, particularly something with a lot of oomph behind it, like a triple, you're possibly ramping your wort temperature up 12 degrees over what's the, the air temperature in your fridge. So if you were wanting to keep it in the mid-60s or even the low 60s, you would have to you know, be down even further. So uh, 12 degrees Fahrenheit. Sorry, I can't do the Celsius conversion in my head right now. Um, So that would be one thing. The easy thing to do, of course, is to tape your override thermostat to the side of your carboy, and that will get you relatively close. And that's a good way to start. The other things I would look at is what yeast culture are you using and how are you treating the yeast ahead of time? Some yeast cultures I find in particular, and I, I think Denny and I have different opinions on this one. So, like for me, the Y-East 3787, which is the uh, West Mall yeast, it always feels like it needs a little time, right? The, the first the first couple sips I have of that keg, it always feels a little janky, a little hot, a little something. And then after a couple of weeks, it kind of pulls together. Uh Given that you're in Spain, I suspect you might be using something like T58 um, just for the availability of dry yeast. And that one, unfortunately, I don't have enough enough experience doing high alcohol beers with to be able to answer reliably on. But I would look at that, look at your yeast temps, you know, make sure that you're actually controlling for the yeast fermentation temperature and not the air temperature in your fridge. Uh, Denny, any other thoughts?
0: Yeah, I, I, that's really the big one right there. Make sure that you're controlling your wort temp, uh, not the environment temp because, uh, it's the wort temp that matters. The other thing I'd be curious to see is the recipe for your beer. Uh, see what you've got in it. Uh, One mistake that I feel like people make when they're making triples or Belgian styles in general is that in order to get the alcohol content that they're looking for, they start with a really, really high original gravity, when actually the key is to end up at a really low final gravity. Uh, I made a triple recently. It started at 1069 But it finished at 1.002, so it's got about 9.2% alcohol. It's dry, it's delicious, it's the way it should be. If you start at a really high original gravity, then you might be risking the creation of fusel alcohols uh, because the fermentation will be more violent and raise the temperature more. I don't know, man. It's it's a wild-ass guess, but that's what the... It's, it's something to consider for sure.
1: Indeed. All right. So next question comes from Jerry Ark
0: in Chicago, who
1: emailed us to say, Hey, Dan I started my homebrewing mostly based on the brew practices from Brewlosophy, which meant using a single vial of yeast and yeast calculator to build up the starter with 200 billion cells over that, I would say, for a future batch. I would decant the rest in the fridge and pitch. All right. So that's the, you know, over uh, overcreate your starters and then hold on to something so that you have an easier time later. Right. This seemed to work, but I was never happy with the lag period, and it was never as good as what they seemed to get at philosophy. So after a lot of reading and hearing about how you guys stopped spinning and started shaking, I decided to give it a try. So far, I am very happy with it, and the lag time seems what it should be, within 12 to 18 hours. So here's the question I don't think you guys went into. The advantage to my old technique was that I had designated yeast for next time. I am torn with how I should retain yeast with this method. Should I use two quarts of starter wort and only pitch half? Top crop during high croison or recover yeast post-fermentation. Do I rinse or not? I understand there's a lot of pros and cons here, but I think of myself as a KISS brewer, much like yourselves, so I assume that whatever you guys are doing is probably the simplest with the best results. Sorry if that was too many words for a simple question, but you know how this hobby is.
0: Oh boy, do we ever. Okay, uh, lots of things to cover here, and let me just start off by saying uh, lag time is overrated. Uh, There's... True, as long as your sanitation is good, you're not going to find a whole lot of difference between a 6-hour lag time and a 48-hour lag time. Uh, I, it's just one of those things I don't worry about. Sure, shorter is nice. No big deal in terms of the finished beer. Okay. So, yes, you could make a double size starter and keep half of it, but then we're back to the starter vessel size container again. So you would need something that would hold at least two gallons, and you would have to shake that enough to fill it with foam, which I think might be kind of a pain. Uh, top cropping is a very viable solution, although personally my life is so disorganized, I can never get out there and top crop at the right time, so I don't worry about it. What I do is I save the slurry from the batch in a sanitized container in the fridge. And actually, for a five gallon batch, I'll pour that slurry into three or maybe even four containers. One of those is enough to repitch into my next batch, uh, assuming it's within, you know, a few weeks or so. If it's longer than that, I'll take a bit out and make a new starter. But yeah, you can easily do that. And remember what we were saying a little while ago about how Drew and I both feel like Yeast gets better with continued reuses. So you would actually have an advantage to saving a bit of your starter in that regard. Uh, I don't rinse yeast. Uh, I don't see a need to. I've done it. It was a pain in the butt, and it didn't make my beer any better. So to kind of put all that together, I would say save your slurry in three, maybe four sanitized containers in the fridge, Don't rinse it. Reuse one of those containers for, like, you know, a batch of gravity, maybe up to 1070 or so. If it's less than a month, you'll be fine. If it's more than a month, uh, then make a starter with some of it or use two containers, and you can do that for a higher-gravity batch also.
1: Yeah, just it's about as kiss as you can get. And if you need the yeast sooner than you think your batch is going to be fermenting, then, yeah, just make the bigger starter and split it. Yeah. Yeah. You'll be fine.
0: Drew gets the next question and it comes in from Craig Wickham in Los Angeles. Uh, probably somebody you see all the time, huh?
1: Oh yeah. I've known Craig for years. Cool.
0: So D and D, I was at the Falcons meeting where Drew presented the quake yeast beers. I'm thinking of making a mead with one. What would be the best sub variety to get started with? Voss? And would I or should I feed it oxygen just before pitching, or would nitrogen be better?
1: Okay. So Uh, hi Craig. Uh, Craig is a long time member of the Maltos Falcons. He's actually been in the club longer than I have. Uh, so, and he is a bit of a meat maker and sort of a bit of a madman. So if you ever see any sort of weird, funny gear that the club has as opposed to practical gear, Craig probably made it. So what sort of, uh, what sort of Quake would I start with? I would probably start with Voss. Uh, in all my tastings, I'm, I don't seem to be a fan so far of anything done with the Horn and Dolls. Uh, for instance, and the Omega Voss Quake is very easily, uh, findable. I wouldn't use something like Oslo because I mean, Oslo is going to be very clean from bootleg and kind of brand new and that seems sort of a waste. But now for mead making and Quake, I have not done this. So rather than me, you know, sit here and try and, you know, pull an answer from thin air, I went out and I reached to Justin Emerald from uh, Maniacal Yeast and I said, so what about Quake yeast and meads? And he's like, Yes, I've done it. I've done this like 12 times now. So he's, uh, he's got at least more of a hand at it than I do. And of course he understands the quake yeast very, very well. And he said that uh, basically all he does is a high level of, uh, yeast nutrients using either a staggered nutrient addition or the Tonsa type schedules for, uh, nutrient schedules, but sped up with, you know, higher, higher yeast temperatures and actually getting through at like twice the speed and get it, uh, his, his ferment done and a good hit of 0.2, 2 and that's it. Uh, and so basically, it's like do everything that you would do for a modern mead-making practice, but you can run this a little bit warmer because of how people treat the quake strains. And by the way, Craig, you're going to be hitting this with about 50 metric tons of blackberries anyway, so I'm not sure anybody's going to be able to tell what you're doing. <laughs> and I agree completely. Because I know nothing about it. See, this is the reason why it helps to get us questions in ahead of time, because then we can ask people who are actually... Yeah, have. that's right, man. It's always a good idea, huh? Yep, absolutely. And our final question in this category comes from Richard Soden in Switzerland, who says, I just did my first open fermentation for a Saison. My initial reasoning, though was, I wanted to avoid any of the stalling that some folks observe. But then I found out the yeast strain I was using, uh, which is the Omega Labs 500, isn't known for stalling. So the question that was asked by somebody in the Swiss homebrewers group on Facebook was... Will open fermentation have an effect on the taste profile?
0: Denny. Richard, you're in luck, buddy. You get two answers for the price of one. First answer is, based on my limited experience with open fermentation, I think maybe I've done it five or six times a number of years ago, no, there will not be any flavor difference. However, based on theory, there very well could be. One of the things that people are starting to get really interested in these days Is fermenting under pressure. It's supposed to uh, speed up the fermentation time and at the same time reduce the esters in the beer. So then, kind of extrapolating from there, if pressurized fermentation reduces esters, then theoretically an open fermentation, where there's no pressure at all, will increase the esters. That Hasn't been my experience, but like I said, I don't have a lot of experience with it, and I've never done like a a side by side fermentation where one was open and the other was uh, traditional with an airlock on it. My guess is that no, it's not going to change the taste. Uh, what do you think, man?
1: I'm going to have to hold up the red card on you on that one. <laughs> I think it does make a difference. Does it? But but I think it's I think it's based on yeast type. I mean, I don't think universally you're going to be able to say, oh, open fermentation is always going to taste this way, or closed fermentation is always going to taste this way. I do think, like, for instance, with the DuPont strains, for instance, or even a lot of British strains, I think they do actually benefit from open fermentation, and I do think that you notice a difference, you know, not in both uh, fermentation performance, but also I think in terms of gravity, in terms of uh, ester, uh, ester production. So, yeah, I, I would say... I'm a fan of doing open fermentation for a number of ale strains, but it's not a universal thing by any means.
0: Yeah, Richard, uh, you know, man, if you get around to doing a little experimenting on this, like splitting a batch and doing one half open and the other half uh, traditional, please let us know because we're both guessing.
1: So that was the last of our yeast questions. We have one category left to go. Just a few more questions questions. And then you guys can get on with your day.
0: Yep. So stick around. We're going to be right back. Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon High Desert Farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve Mechagrade. For more information, please visit Mechagrade.com. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my wort to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super-fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your word in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art. They're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. thanks for sticking around for this final segment we have a few questions here that we couldn't put anywhere else so we're calling them miscellaneous the first one is from luke Sui from email luke says i was curious if you had any experience with this new oat malt from Breeze. if you've tried it how do you think it compared to simpson's golden naked oats thanks for the great podcast
1: well thank you and yeah i Breeze was just pushing this at HomebrewCon hard, so I had never seen this before. But they were giving out a, I think a pound of it to everybody who stopped by their booth. And of course, if you stopped by the end of the show, you probably got more than a pound. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is their blonde roast oat malt. And yeah, it seems like they're going for something like a Simpsons Golden Naked Oats, but when I tasted it, Simpsons Golden Naked Oats to me feels very oaty and also very, um, uh, sweet. So it's uh, it's got a nice light caramel to it, almost like you took some oats and you drizzled honey over the top of it.
0: You know, I've heard it compared to a crystal malt.
1: Is that correct? Kind of, but it's a really pale crystal right. malt. Now this blonde roast oat malt from Brees, when I tasted it, it, yeah, it had a little bit of sweetness to it, but it wasn't the same sort of thing. It wasn't it it, it wasn't that crystal malt, you know, uh, obvious type sugariness or the honey characters to it. Biggest thing I actually got out of it was a little bit more of a roast tone to it, which of course makes sense with the name of it, roast oat. And so I have not used it yet in a beer. I've just done the, you know, chew them up test and see what it tasted like, uh, you know, which is the whole thing of like go you know, pop a couple of kernels in your mouth, chew them up and let it sit in your saliva for a little bit. So the amylase in your saliva will actually start to work on it. I, it's interesting to me. I, I, I I'm, well, I mean, of course I'm going to do a saison with it. But I'm not quite certain yet what to think of it. So I may also try and do like my pale oat mild that I always do. And that one I do with golden naked oats and oat malt. And I want to see how that changes the perception of the beer. But it's an interesting new ingredient. Of course, I like new ingredients. So... Uh, go out there and check it out, and if you have any further feedback about it, uh, let us know and so we can put it out there on the podcast.
0: Yeah, really, man. It, it uh, sounds like an interesting product, so please, any of you who've used it, please let us know what it
1: is like. And our second miscellaneous question comes from Aaron Whiney, who says, Good morning. I was on More Beer, getting ready to buy some Mosaic hops and saw a Prop 65 warning stating that this product contains chemicals known to the state of California to cause cancer and birth defects or other reproductive harm. After doing a bit more research, I found the cause of this warning is the mercine content of the hops. Considering that many of the new citrus-forward hop strains contain high concentrations of this oil, do brewers need to start thinking about the health effects of the hops they use? Is this even more of a concern with hop extracts and products like the cryo hops where these oils are concentrated? Thanks for your guidance.
0: Okay, uh, first thing I'll say is that uh, nothing I'm about to say is uh, necessarily medically accurate. Uh, personally, I follow the Julia Child principle when it comes to things like this, and that is everything in moderation. Uh, I don't know how much mercine it takes to cause health issues, but I would have to guess that you would die from the amount of beer you'd have to consume before you die from the mercine level in them. Uh... You know, I guess we can do some more research into this and see if we can find out what a toxic level of mercine is and how that relates to the hops in your beer. I would say, in general, don't worry about it.
1: Yeah, does anybody out there know what the LD fifty is of mercine? Um, and just to kind of back up, so what Aaron started with was the the mention of Prop sixty five. And Prop 65 is one of those well-meaning laws that sort of kind of caused everybody to CYA themselves everywhere. And, you know, Prop 65 was basically out there to say, Hey, you know, you need to warn consumers if something they're going to consume has been found to be carcinogenic or if an environment they're going to be in contains chemical compounds that are considered to be carcinogenic. The whole idea being, you know, Hey, don't go getting people around toxic waste or insecticides or pesticides or whatever that, you know, may actually cause them real harm. Well, Here in California, at least, that law, while well-intentioned, has been apparently interpreted loosely enough that everybody has decided that, oh, my God, if you're anywhere where there's possibly something that involves a potential cancer risk, you have to warn people. Otherwise, you can be sued for it because people have been. And so, I mean, these days, it doesn't matter where you go. Like, almost every building that you walk into has a Prop 65 warning on it because, oh, you're around car exhaust or you're around, you know, Freon in our refrigerators or something like that. So... Yeah, it's gotten to the point where Prop 65 just doesn't mean anything, unfortunately.
0: <laughs> okay, and after that little screed, uh, I'll go back to my statement, which is, uh, you'll die from the amount of beer you drink before you'll die from the immer- amount of mercine in it. So, man, if you think that was a screed, <laughs> close enough, close enough. Uh huh. All right, last question here. All righty, the last question. I guess we'll both take this one. Mm-hmm. It comes from Richard Soden in Switzerland again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the f- open fermentation from the last That's time. That's right. Richard says, so we started a homebrew club association in Lausanne, and we recently organized a hefeschpiel or yeast game. The idea was pretty simple. We set up an event with a local startup that has set itself up to propagate and supply local breweries with the yeast pitch for their brews. Their minimum batch size for their pitch is 50 U.S. gallons, which is too much for us home brewers. But when you get 10 of us together, we can make 10 different beers with the same yeast. So that's what we did. The biologists from the company gave a short seminar on yeast and brewing. Then at the end of the event, our volunteer brewers collected their jam jars of slurry that were propagated from OYL 500 and went off and brewed their beers. We'll be drinking.
1: Oh, hey, I think I think we just fi- figured out where Richard's saison uh, that was open from Randy came from. Yeah, really.
0: We'll be drinking a selection of saisons at a club barbecue next month. You're welcome to drop by if you're in the area. Drew, book us some uh, plane tickets, will you? Uh, on it, chief. My question is this: What are the best events you have organized or been involved in as part of a homebrew club? I'm gonna, I'll let you go first. Oh no, you go first. <laughs> Okay, I, I was able to think of two. Uh, I organized several Iron Brewer events for our homebrew club, and based on the uh, TV program Iron Chef, which is sadly no longer around. Uh, but basically, they were given mystery ingredients. They showed up and didn't know what they were going to get to brew with, and they had to come up with a beer style and uh, use the ingredients And, uh, you know, we started off the first year, we we were pretty nice to the brewers. We gave them typical brewing ingredients, various grains, and I think a bag of table sugar, stuff like that. And by the last one, and I think this was the reason it was the last one, we had graduated to giving everyone breakfast cereal. And not only did they have to use the breakfast cereal in the beer, at the judging, they had to not only serve the beer, but they had to serve a food dish that was made with the beer and complimented the beer. Uh, I, I narrowly escaped uh, assassination in that event. Uh, I still remember one guy in particular cursing me the entire day of brew day uh, because he got, I don't know if he got the, the lucky charms or the Fruit Loops, but uh, whichever, his mash had this amazing electric green color to it. Uh, yeah, this just sounds like beware the ides of General Miller. <laughs> and, and you know, and I was, I mean, you know, I wasn't brewing, so I guess maybe I was having more fun than the brewers because I was really enjoying watching them, uh, be creative with these unusual ingredients. And I would say that 90% of the beers turned out darn good. Although with the breakfast cereal beers, most of them didn't give much flavor to the beer. The other one I've been involved in as a participant that I just used to love was called Hop Madness. It was uh, done at a state park up in Philomath, Oregon, in uh, in the, in the hop-growing area that's up there. Began as a birthday party for Dave Will's business, Fresh Hops. Dave would uh, go out into the fields and uh, load up his tr- his pickup truck with fresh hops from the field, come back dump them in a big pile people would uh, dive in start picking uh, fresh wet hops to use in their beers Uh, people brewing their weekend camp out brew session party Uh, we got to tour a couple of the hop fields Uh, and this was back in the days when you could actually jump in piles of hops they don't let you do that anymore Uh, and it was just a really really fun event of uh, camaraderie and beer and hops. Uh, I just loved it. Uh, unfortunately, it's gone now, and it's probably f- for the best because good things can't last forever.
1: And for me, I'll include two events that I've been involved in. Uh, one is the Southern California Homebrewers Festival, which you've, you've heard me talking at before on this podcast, interviewing people with Marshall. And it's just a great time. It's a chance for all the homebrew clubs in Southern California to come together. It's like 50 homebrew clubs a day of just wild and crazy drinking and seeing people and homebrewers be as interesting and creative as they can be, you know, from, you know, the booths that they set up, from the beers they pour, the costumes that some of them wear, and even sometimes just to, you know, the, the level of degree of execution that they're taking. Uh, it's a great time. I highly recommend everybody go see that at least once. Uh It's usually the first weekend in May or last weekend in April based on timing of the moon. And then the other one is also something that you've heard about here on the podcast, which is Brew with a Falcon. Um, Brew with a Falcon was one of my ideas just to get people out into other people's houses to go brew. If you guys will remember back to the Long Beach uh, episode when we were talking to We Love Long Beach, talking about the community festival that they put together Part of the power of that or part of the reason for that is sort of the disconnection that a lot of communities have nowadays. And that's even true sometimes within our own clubs. You know, the Falcons are spread out across a good portion of LA, which means that, you know, you'll hang out with various people at various times, largely due to geographic concerns. And so it's kind of nice to have this event where we actually get people to come over to our houses and, you know, do something as a group. And you really get to see how other people brew and you get to have a fun time doing it. And so to me, that's always been one of my proudest creations.
0: And, so. you know, I'll mention one more that we both just participated in, and that is HomebrewCon, uh, a.k.a. the National Homebrew Conference uh, Three days of fun and beer and meeting other brewers and talking beer with them. A club night has got to be one of the most outrageous things on the face of the earth. So I, I don't think we can pass that one up. Huh? We got to mention that.
1: Oh yeah, that's always a great time. So there you go. There are the events that that we know we love and that we love to see come every year. Yeah,
0: right. When they do. All right. Well, hey, that's it. Yes, it is it. Whew. That was a bunch of questions, a bunch of talking, but now it's time to wrap it up. Thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. I hang out on a bunch of different beer forums, most notably the AHA Beer Discussion Forum. Drew is uh, found on the homebrewing subreddit and the Slack Homebrew channel mainly. If you want to ask us a question or suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or even just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at com. Or if you want to get a hold of each one of us individually, I'm Denny at com, and he's Drew at com. And, of course, you can always shoot us a text or leave us a voicemail, and please include your name, at 626-765-1AL. So, until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing.